1: Well,
2: good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. And I'm sitting in with live from Seattle, KGNW 820, the word for the next couple of days. We're glad to have you with us as well. You know, it occurred to me, we started this on Monday and I didn't really introduce myself. I think you should probably know I've grown up in the Pacific Northwest. I'm a native of Portland, Oregon. I'm a middle-aged woman. I am a musician, married for 38 years. I'm... um, caregiver, primary caregiver for my mother, who will be turning 90 years old on the 13th of December. Uh, She lives in uh, our home with my husband and me, and we are followers of Jesus. Um, And just happy to have the opportunity to speak into your homes and your automobiles or wherever you might happen to be for these next few days uh, at KGNW 820 The Word. Part of the uh, challenge with broadcasting from my husband's office, I'm at home rather than in the studio, is it doesn't give us the opportunity. To take call ins. You can email me, however, at georgene at kpdq.com, and that's G E O R G E N E, georgene georgine at kpdq.com, if you'd like to weigh in on any of the subjects or just want to chat. So uh, keep that in mind. We typically start off the program taking a look at some of the headlines that have developed over the last 24, 48 hours, a little longer than that over the weekend, and we also feature an interview, something that we hope will be edifying. Uh, for our listeners as well. So that's the pattern that we have been following, you may have noticed, and that's what we'll do for the next few days as you are with us. Uh, Today we're going to talk with Jack Eason. He is the author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. And it certainly is a timely and relevant subject and nobody does it better than Jack Eason. So he'll be joining us later in this first hour. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, the Supreme Court has given a temporary win to California churches over the coronavirus restrictions that had been imposed upon them by Governor Gavin Newsom. They gave a positive sign to the California churches that are fighting the governor. Um, on a number of on the number, rather, of people allowed at houses of worship due to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, in the order that was issued today, the court vacated a district court ruling against Harvest Rock Church with instructions to reconsider their challenge in light of the Supreme Court's recent rejection of restrictions on prayer services in New York. Well, the September 2nd order of the United States District Court of the Central District of California is vacated, the court said, and the case is remanded to the United States Courts of Appeal for the Northern Circuit and and with instructions to remand to the district court for further consideration in light of Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo, the Supreme Court said. Uh, Well, in the 5-4 ruling, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and the Jewish group, Agada. Uh, Israel of America. They issued an injunction against New York restrictions that limited prayer services at the houses of worship to 10 people. Well, in California, there's a tiered system that places different levels of instruction or rather restriction on different uh, counties. But as of the 21st, 41 counties in the state uh, representing 94 percent of the state's population. They were under the most restrictive regulations that include the prohibition of all indoor religious services, none whatsoever, Services in other counties have strict caps on the number of people permitted, and the state issued specific guidance to places of worship earlier this year. Well, the church's legal argument is based primarily on the First Amendment. Under the amendment's free exercise clause, the church claims that Newsom's order is illegal because it restricts the size of religious gatherings while treating non-religious groups and activities Differently. Well, the church also cited case law surrounding the First Amendment's establishment clause that says that the government cannot force or influence a person to go to or remain away from church against his will. Well, the church claims that imposing criminal penalties on people who go to a house of worship influences them to stay away. So, again, the Supreme Court has given temporary win in California to churches over restrictions that were in place there. Well, in other news, President Trump is once again charging that last month's presidential election was rigged and rife with fraud. Well, in an address that was posted on his Twitter and Facebook pages that the president described as possibly the most important speech I've ever made, the president charged that lots of bad things happened during the election. And he argued that if we are right about the fraud, Joe Biden can't be president. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of votes. We're talking about numbers like nobody has ever seen before, end quote. Well, taking aim again at the surge of absentee balloting and early voting due to health concerns with the coronavirus pandemic, the president emphasized that we used to have what we called Election Day. Now we have election days, weeks and months, and lots of bad things happen during this ridiculous period of time. Well, the mail and voting scam is the latest part of this uh, four-year effort to overturn the results of the 2016 election, and it's been like living in hell, the president argued. And the president vowed that he's determined to protect our election system, which he claimed is now under coordinated assault and siege. Well, among some of the um, headlines on the subject, Sidney Powell filed suit in Wisconsin to block the state from certifying results there. Georgia Senate committees are holding hearings on election issues. Witnesses are on the verge of tears testifying about intimidation, harassment at the Detroit Vote Processing Center. Thousands of ballots were scanned numerous times in Dominion machines, contractor witness says. And the Georgia Senate committee holding those hearings says that Sidney Powell's election lawsuit in Georgia gets expedited uh, for an appeal. The Georgia State Farm Arena footage actually shows a poll worker Uh, Staying behind, pulling out suitcases with ballots. So there's a lot going on and how to uh, interpret all of that in light of the outcome of the election is uh, ongoing. In other news, uh, other developments, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is decrying election misinformation coming from every single angle. Sean Hannity, in the meantime, tears into the mainstream media for totally, completely ignoring election fraud claims. They're not interested at all. A Pennsylvania whistleblower has spoken out after claiming a forensically destructive vote canvassing procedure. And a Florida attorney is under investigation after saying he's moving to Georgia to vote. Kayleigh McEnany scolded Jennifer Rubin and Anderson Cooper for criticizing the president's push to keep kids in school. And the president has hinted once again at a 2024 presidential run in remarks at a White House party. Well, CNN by, uh, bosses rather spiked the Hunter Biden controversy, audio tapes reveal, saying at the time, we're not going with the story. Well, newly released recordings from the group Project Veritas revealed that CNN purposely avoided the Hunter Biden controversy that emerged in the final weeks of the 2020 presidential election. Critics of CNN have long observed the network's complete blackout of the bombshell reporting from The New York Post about the emails that allegedly came from Biden's laptop shedding light on his questionable foreign business dealings before and after his father, then Democratic nominee Joe Biden, was in office as vice president. However, recordings of CNN's conference calls featuring the upper brass of the network finally confirmed suspicions of the news organization's concerted effort to suppress the story that was damaging to the Biden campaign. Obviously, we're not going to the New York Post story right now on Hunter Biden, CNN political director David um, Chalane uh, is heard saying during a conference call on the 14th of October, the same day the Post released the first report on Hunter Biden emails. Later, insisting it was giving its marching orders to the right-wing echo chamber about what to talk about today. Well, Chalane, who also serves as a CNN vice president, continued saying, "Obviously, Hunter Biden's lawyer is quoted in the New York Post piece, and we'll just continue to report, uh, report out this." Uh, This is the very stuff that the president was impeached over. This is the stuff that Senate committees looked at and found nothing wrong in Joe Biden's interactions with Ukrainians. And now having an email that perhaps there was a meeting with someone in the Burisma, it seems. Well, Rudy Giuliani's sort of dreamo vision of how to throw stuff at the wall in these closing days of the campaign, end quote. Again, quoting Chilean, a vice president. For CNN. Well, in other developments, a consulting firm linked to Biden's cabinet has scrubbed its China work from its website. Well, the new story is detailing explosive confrontations, pretty shady activities that allegedly took place with former President Bill Clinton and his family, including that he took a 2003 trip to the pedophile island of disgraced fin- financier Jeffrey Epstein. Again, Bill Clinton visited the island and heads uh, a kind of cult a longtime aide claims, well, Doug Band, who served as Clinton's right-hand man many, uh, for many years, I should say, after he left the White House, told Vanity Fair that the 42nd president visited the Little St. James, the Caribbean island where Epstein allegedly trafficked underage victims. Clinton has denied visiting the island, and a spokesperson provided the outlet with detailed log entries of the period in question that did not contain a visit. Well, Epstein's death last year sent shockwaves through the media because the convicted pedophile had party with some of the world's most powerful elites. As allegations continued to emerge in the media, the photo surfaced of Clinton apparently receiving a massage from one of the victims. Band also dished a, uh, about other details surrounding Epstein and Clinton's orbit, which he likened to a cult. Hey, I can see we need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in live from Seattle, KGNW 820 The Word. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to Live from Seattle and The Georgine Rice Show. I'm sitting in for KGNW 820 The Word. We're winding our way through some of the top news stories. The U.S. reached a grim new milestone in the coronavirus fight with the steepest spike the country has seen, and a San Francisco plan would ban tobacco smoking and vaping inside apartments. But of course, smoking weed would be just fine. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham Turned down a Biden administration post, sources say, and NBC's Chris Collinsworth says, uh, was rather blown away that Pittsburgh's women understood football. Imagine that, women who understand football. Several states plan to sue Facebook next week, and Singapore approved the sale of lab-grown meat, making history with Eat Just. Yellen and Mnuchin, they've uh, spoken publicly as part of a White House transition process, transition Beginning Sidney Powell suddenly is seeking to hand the Senate in Georgia to Democrats, she held a rally there and encouraged Republicans to boycott the upcoming runoffs, which would hand power to Democrats to undo undo. Uh, the Senate majority. Rich Lowry says the two Trump-allied lawyers have made themselves into wrecking balls against the Republican Party in Georgia, whose top elected officials, they allege, are involved in the most dastardly and far-reaching conspiracy in American history. This might be only a bizarre footnote to the 2020 election if their charges weren't being amplified by the President of the United States and didn't come at a time when the GOP needs all of its voters to turn out in the two January runoff elections in Georgia that will determine control of the Senate. Carl Rofe says Republicans worry, however, about President Trump's attacks on Georgia elections machinery, including Twitter's assaults on the state's GOP governor and secretary of state. They're concerned Republicans will be convinced the race is rigged and stay home, allowing Democrats to win. Well, in other news, Biden says you cannot be traveling during these holidays. The king has spoken or the king elect, I suppose, is the right way to put that. The presumptive king elect an Iowa Democrat who lost her House race has appealed to the House for a review of the vote. She's hoping fellow Democrats will somehow r- rescue her razor thin six vote loss. But it is possible. From the story, a similar case appeared before the House in 1984 in a congressional race in Indiana between Democrat Frank McCloskey and Republican Rick McIntyre. Democrats in the House reviewed the election and announced that McCloskey had won the race by four votes. McIntyre was ahead by 418 votes before the review, several thousand ballots thrown out for technical reasons. Iowa Democrat Rita Hart asked House lawmakers to do just that. Austin's mayor is vacationed while telling others to stay home the latest Democrat, to get caught in this hypocrisy disease. Ari Fleischer says, how many more Democrats are going to apologize for being hypocrites? He's referring to leaders who have uh, told their people to lock down and done otherwise themselves. One Democrat isn't apologizing. The L.A. County supervisor caught dining out after voting to not allow others to do so said, well, it's a non-story. Well, maybe to him. Progressives are upset with Barack Obama over his criticism of the defund police movement. Imagine a world where Obama is too far right for Democrats. Well, a pension crisis is growing in several states, particularly Illinois, but not exclusively, where it has led to higher taxes, causing many residents to flee the state, only making things worse. The story notes that Moody's Investor Service estimates unfunded liabilities in Illinois' five state-managed pension systems at $230 billion for fiscal year 2019, equal to about 26% of gross domestic product. Moody's also um, projects that the uh, debt will grow to an all-time high of $261 billion uh, for fiscal year 2020, owing to investment losses in markets riled by COVID-19. One of my all-time favorites, economist Walter Williams, has died. He was 84 From the great Thomas Sowell, another of my all-time favorites, both African-American scholars, he was my best friend for half a century. There was no one I trusted more or whose integrity I respected more. Since he was younger than me, I chose him to be my literary executor to take control of my books after I was gone. But his death is a reminder that no one really has anything to say. About such things. Well, a fellow professor of economics at George Mason University looks at how Williams shaped America, and we'll talk more about that later in the program. A one minute tribute to uh, Walter Williams was also provided by Salem host Larry Elder. Well, in other news, the top of the fold, the Department of Justice uh, fired back at the media's claims of voter fraud probes being over. They are certainly far from that. Some media outlets have incorrectly reported that the department has concluded its investigation of election fraud and announced an affirmative finding of no fraud in the election. The Department of Justice spokesperson said in a statement, that's not what the Associated Press reported, nor what the Attorney General said. The department will continue to receive and vigorously pursue all specific and credible allegations of fraud as expeditiously as possible. While in the election debrief, Trump's legal team is going to submit evidence of over 40,000 people who voted twice in Nevada. Representative Mo Brooks plans to challenge the Electoral College vote. And Biden's surge in red states won't help Democrats with looming redistricting fights. Well, uh, CNN anchors and Biden advisors attended a major Communist Chinese Party conference with Xi Jinping. And Nancy Pelosi caved and backed a bipartisan relief proposal as the basis for new negotiations. A prominent diversity consulting firm funded entirely by taxpayer dollars, the Mid-Atlantic Equity Consortium conducts anti-racist training across 15 states and U.S. territories. An appeals court has given the uh, OK to a North Carolina voter ID law. And in the category of health, the U.S. topped 14 million COVID cases, setting a daily record for deaths, cases and hospitalizations. And time to cancel everything. That's what Los Angeles residents are ordered to stay home and do. The CDC has shortened the recommended quarantine time from 14 days to as few as seven. There are some details to determine the length of time, so check that out. Obama, Bush, and Clinton are willing to get vaccines on camera. Now, I thought we weren't supposed to uh, trust the Trump vaccine for the China virus, Now that the election is over, it seems safe. Again, the coronavirus is subject to political influence, apparently. Well, Sweden gives up on the Swedish experiment. Dr. Anders Tegnell, the civil servant who pushed for the Swedish experiment, now says we see no signs of immunity in the population that are slowing down the infection right now. The issue of herd immunity, he adds, is difficult. Sweden had backed away from its experiment. Authorities have banned gatherings of more than eight people. Prime Minister Stefan Lofren, is advising Swedes, uh, don't go to the gym, don't go to the library, don't have uh, dinner out, don't have parties, cancel, end quote. Well, the national security Trump's threat to veto the annual defense policy bill fell pretty flat on Capitol Hill, and the House-backed curbs on China stock listings is sending the bill to Trump. Well, adult businesses and foreign operations are targeting Parler, the social media platform, with pornography. It's designed to be anything but that. Well, the Labor Board claims that evil Google illegally spied on and fired workers. Well, Kaylee McEnany, she opened the day's press conference with a video of Democrats breaking their own lockdown rules. And Austin's mayor tells the community to stay home while in Cabo San Lucas after flying there in a private jet. John Ossoff, whose father took about a million dollars from the relief fund, slammed greedy businesses raiding the PPP. Well, Hollywood figures are mockingly urging conservatives not to vote in the Georgia runoff. Of course, there are some conservatives who are doing the same. And dozens of body bags were left in front of a Republican or rather Republican senator's homes. Uh, Ohio adds Ohio to its COVID-19 travel advisory map. Sounds like a good idea. And a father and son graduated from the Texas Police Academy together saying... Gave them really something of a bond. And a 102-year-old World War II veteran has a Columbia Park named after her in her honor. On this day in history, 1964, police arrest some 800 students at the University of California at Berkeley one day after the students stormed the administration building and staged a massive sit-in. 1818 on this day in history, Illinois is admitted as the 21st state of the United States. 1828, Andrew Jackson is elected president of the United States by the Electoral College. 1992, on this day in history, the first telephone text message is sent by British engineer Neil Papworth, who transmits the greeting Merry Christmas from his work computer in Newbury, Berkshire, to... um, Executive Richard Jarvis mobile phone. On this day in history, 2008, theological conservative upset by liberal views of U.S. Episcopalians and Canadian Anglicans form a rival North American province. And finally, on this day in history, a federal judge rules Detroit could use bankruptcy to cut employee pensions and relieve itself of other crushing debt, handing a defeat to the city's unions and retirees and shifting the case into a delicate. New phase. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. Up next, Jack Eason, the Loneliness Solution.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. Well, as promised, we're going to talk with my next guest, Jack Eason, in just a moment. But to to speak of his book, The Loneliness Solution, despite our connected world, and we are connected to one another, perhaps now in ways uh, using technology than we never imagined... And partly because of that connection, we're lonelier than ever. Social media tricks us into thinking that we're engaged in genuine friendship, yet instead of intimacy, we get little more than what amounts to digital small talk. But there is a solution, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, in his book, The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World, executive director of Crossover Cups Mission And a pastoral consultant, Jack Eason, he shares practical advice as he invites readers to discover the benefits of doing life together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, that's what we're called to do. Grounding his message in scripture, he helps us learn about the obstacles to real community, how to reimagine what real friendship looks like, and to discover a place of belonging. Well, Jack Eason has been the executive director of Crossover Cups Mission for 30 years. He also consults with a variety of nonprofit ministries, helping them develop successful approaches to fundraising and development. Jack Eason, we are so delighted to have you with us. Welcome.
0: Hey, Georgina. It's great to be with you today.
2: Thank you so much. You know, I've been reading about loneliness prior to this pandemic and the word epidemic was being applied, that there is a wave of loneliness uh, in our culture uh, that people are experiencing in ways that we've never seen before. The loneliness solution addresses that. Why are people so lonely today when we have uh, the opportunity to travel from one location to another in a matter of moments? We have access to technology that connects us in some ways. Why is it that we're so lonely
0: yeah, you know, that's a great question. I mean, we can we can even communicate with people uh, on other planets, you know, with NASA yeah. and our that go to the moon and we can talk back and forth. Technology is amazing. Uh, but you're right, we are in an epidemic and uh, we're, we were in one uh, with loneliness long before uh, the pandemic of COVID-19 came on the scene. Perhaps it's even more uh, h- highlighted and heightened and the spotlight is on loneliness now because of what we've been in during the last eight months. But You know, I I think we have really redefined to some degree now uh, what, for example, what friendship is. I mean, you know, uh, probably when you and I grew up, uh, I, I know when I grew up, there was not the technology that we have now. I actually had to go outside, uh, go physically <laughs> play with the, the kids down the street that I wanted to play with. Now we, we, we define friendship. Well, I can I can add or subtract friends with a mouse click right on social media. So we really have redefined what friendship is all about. And um, I think to overcome this loneliness issue, that's going to be one of the first steps is to help people understand uh, social media is not all bad but it maybe has given us a false reality of what social what friendship is about. I mean, I have 3000 plus Facebook friends, but honestly, some of them I I don't even know. And if if I had something (laughs) happen at 2 a.m. at my house and needed, uh, you know, had an emergency and needed help, maybe six of those would actually show up to help me. So, you know, we've got to really get back to figuring out what real friendship is.
2: Well, how do you define loneliness versus being alone? A lot of us right now are alone. Um, but loneliness is something different. Explain the distinction between the two.
0: Yeah, I, I like to be, I uh, actually like to be alone. I, I don't know if you do, Georgina. I know you're with a lot of people and, and with your radio show, I'm with a lot of people at churches and different places and speaking. And, and sometimes I'm just like, okay, I, I, I'm done. I have no more energy <laughs> for anyone else. I want to be alone. And so that's not a bad thing when we choose to be alone. But loneliness is different. I mean, you can be lonely and be in a group of people. Mm hmm. It's this overwhelming feeling when I was doing some research and asking different questions of, of all age groups, but especially those who are like 18 to 30. Many of them would say, I- I'm lonely and I feel like I'm in a, a sea and I'm drowning or I'm I'm trapped inside a cardboard box and I can't get out. It's this overwhelming feeling of not being able to connect, despite, again, as you mentioned earlier, all the ways that we might look and appear that we're connected. Um It's this feeling of just uh, really a lack of of real, genuine friendship and connectivity.
2: Is it because we misunderstand what real friendship and connectivity is or that there are so many distractions that we've settled for something other than the genuine, heartfelt, deep connections that Mm -hmm. we are called to have and desperately need?
0: Yeah, I I think you're right. I think it's both. I I think our culture has kind of pushed us away from real connection. And again, uh, someone uh, said to me, maybe we have traded the false shrines of Twitter and Instagram for real friendship. In in some respects, I think they're right. Again, uh, social media is not all bad. We're surviving, a lot of us, with technology and social media Mm -hmm. right now because of the pandemic. But it has created this false sense of what friendship is about. And and I think, too, technology and just our society, uh, a couple of months ago, I left home. I I went to get some food, dry cleaning, the bank, a couple other places. I never got out from behind the steering wheel. I was able to do that mm. all from the comfort of my car. And I got back home and I thought, you know, I miss walking into those establishments and maybe having a meaningful conversation because I'm so busy and uh, technology has sped things up for us. And so we sometimes equate uh, the speediness of life with progress. <laughs> I'm really starting to ask myself, are we really are we really making progress? Or are we going backwards? Because when it comes to building relationships, um, uh, you've heard this before, I'm sure it, you, you spell love T-I-M-E. Time And if if we're all so busy that we have not left buffer of time and margin of time in our lives, then we're not going to build the kind of relationships that God intended for us to build.
2: I know we are designed and built to be in relationship with others, and yet our culture today makes that uh, more of a challenge for us. What do you think some of the obstacles are that keep us from the kind of friendship that I think all of us, when we're honest, long for but seldom find?
0: Well, I, I think, again, social media, I think busyness, I think something that I've seen just in the last year, especially. And, uh, you know, whether it's the pandemic or politics, uh, I think we have maybe even over the last decade in, in our attempt to give people validity, we have created these names of groups. Uh, and so we have actually divided ourselves And Mm -hmm. we put the spotlight on what makes us different instead of what makes us similar. What makes us similar is we're created in the image of God. We are the human race, um, and those differences are important. But I think we have put the spotlight so much on the differences, people feel like, well, I can't connect to that person. I have nothing in common with that person. And, And the reality is that that may somewhat be true, but it's the diversity, especially of the body of Christ, that makes us uh, be better together and stronger together is that the diversity. But if we don't highlight the fact that we do have things in common, I think that's uh, that is a great obstacle to friendship. Again, we've redefined friendship a lot um, uh, with culture and social media. Our busyness has, has pushed us away from real relationships. Here's the other thing I think too, I, I've discovered, especially with the younger folks. Um, and, and again, all this ties together is a, a really a lack of wanting to invest what it takes Mm-hmm. To to really have real friendship community, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He's in his mid twenties, and and um, he has been trying to find community and really a faith community. And uh, he said, "You know, I, I just give up. I, I've been there, done that. Kind of got the t-shirt. I don't need to do that anymore." And I said, "Well, have you have you really tried?" Yeah, and he and he's maybe gone to a couple of different faith communities, churches. And I said, "Have you ever gone to a restaurant where you had bad service?" And he said, "Well, of course, of course." I said, "Did you?" cease ever going out to eat again? (laughs) And he's like, well, no, no, of course not. I said, well, that's kind of how it is building community. You you have to work at it. I mean, whether it's friendship, whether it's marriage, I'm getting ready to celebrate 24 years of marriage. And I can tell you, if you ask my wife, she would say, oh my goodness, talk about investment. Talk about time and trying over and over again to to get through my thick skull sometimes. It takes time and effort. And it's amazing to me, really, especially that age group and we're all guilty. I'm guilty of it, too. We're willing to invest when it comes to, like to learning a musical instrument. We're, learning, uh, we're willing to invest if it comes to like getting in shape. We go to the gym. We work out. We're willing to invest learning a language or a skill or a hobby. But then we think friendship should just be instantaneous. And it's not. It requires work. It requires effort. And I think that is a big obstacle that me- mentally we have to overcome and realize those are some things we've got to do to have real, uh, authentic relationships.
2: We're talking this afternoon with Jack Easton. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, the subtitle of the book. We'll get to that in our next segment, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. I'm Georgine Rice. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a few moments.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for Live from Seattle, KGNW 820 the Word. I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Eason. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. The book is published by Ravel. And let me ask you, what do we miss out on when we do not have the kind of connection that we're designed for? If we don't develop friendships, if we don't have one or two people that we truly connect with, what's uh, what's at stake and what do we lose? Because I think some of us need to be convinced that there's something deeper available for us than what we currently have in our current cultural form.
0: Wow, that is that is so good, Georgine, you're right. And, and I think we miss on ultimately the kind of connectivity uh, God wants for us that will help us grow um because uh, as much as i want to think personally i'm all that and i have all the pieces of every personality trait and gift and skill that i need i i don't i don't and it's much like you know a sports team there are different people who have different positions the, the bible says it this way that we each have different gifts as a part of the body and uh, that's the way god made us i i think it was actually intentional <laughs> i think god did that so we would have to depend on one another so this power of community is, is really what's at stake. It's doing life with other people, and uh, it's, it's having your needs met. It's having people pray with you and uh, and reach out to you and meet your needs. We, we had um, a Bible study group for about three years, Georgine in our home. And we just stopped a few uh, months ago, and we'll start back up probably soon. But uh, we had a family in that group, and they, as we got to know them, because they were plugged into community— uh, we just, we found out that he had served in the military. He had been in Afghanistan. There's some biological chemical warfare. Things happen. He was really struggling because of that to hold down a job. And uh, we found out that they were about, he and his wife, who was a homemaker, they had four kids, uh, they were about to be evicted out of their home. And so uh, over a series of weeks, kind of behind the scenes, about about 20 of us, about 10 couples started taking up some money and they came the next Sunday evening. And and uh, before we got started, we just said one of the members of our group handed them this basket of, uh, of cash and there was checks and some people gave a little bit, some people gave a lot. It was interesting how how people just did what they could do, but it all added together to make a big impact. And I'll never forget, as he was handed this basket of cash, he started he started weeping and he just said, "Why why are you guys doing this?" And before me, Mr. Mr. pastor guy could come up with a profound answer, somebody in our group said, "Because that's what family does." Mm. That's what family does. And I thought, Wow, that is exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of people are missing that kind of, you know, what the early church experienced in Acts, the the family atmosphere, which is what the body of Christ is and should be for us. And so what's at stake? You're missing out on that if you're not plugged into that. People meeting your needs, you being able to meet someone else's needs, which is just as great as having your own needs met, because it's more blessed to give than to receive. So that, that relationship, that back and forth relationship, You're missing that if you're not plugged into community. And you may say, oh, man, that's really really hard. It's difficult to find community. Yes, you're right. It is. But keep trying because when you find it, you'll go, oh, my goodness, this is what I was wired for, made for, and how God is going to use it to help me grow, become the man or woman of God that I need to be.
2: As I mentioned earlier, the subtitle of your book is Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World. Give us some creative ideas to help build friendships in a society like ours that doesn't make it uh, the easiest thing to do.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, especially during what we've been experiencing together uh, the last eight months as as a world, really, especially as a country, um, as well. There's some creative things that we can do. A, a lot of them are digital. Again, as I mentioned, social media and technology is not all bad. Uh, I, I think one that you can do uh, right now, a lot of people are looking to get outside because of some of the restrictions, um, is, is volunteering. We had, a, for example, in our area a few months ago, we had a, a storm come through, blew down some big trees Uh, in in a neighborhood and we found out that it was an elderly woman's uh, home and uh, somebody put out a good use of social media. They put out on social media to this neighborhood association, a Facebook group, hey, this has happened. This lady's got some trees down. Uh, She has to have uh, a service. People come in and clean it up. We're probably looking at a few thousand dollars, which she probably can't afford. Uh, If you got a chainsaw and you like to cut up wood, meet us down there Saturday morning at eight. So I go down, I get down there, Georgine. there's like 15, 16 guys with chainsaws, (laughs) didn't know each other, a lot of them, going crazy, clean this yard up, and uh, and I'm looking around going, wow, this is the power of connectivity, of community, and uh, some of those folks are still getting together now after that, that, that met each other. Uh, with a chainsaw in their hand, helping someone they didn't, didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. So there's some creative things that we can do. It just requires us to to open our eyes and look because God will provide those opportunities and uh, volunteering again is a great way uh, to get out of the rut that you may find yourself in.
2: Mm, that's so good. Hey, you, um, Point out you right that we need to be willing to invest. You used that word earlier as you were relating to your uh, your marriage and by the way, happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> um, what does it look like? a real community and connection that we we long for and that I believe God provides opportunity for for all of us if we're willing to make that investment as you describe it
0: well and and that's the key word is investment, and we really have to be willing to do it and um, you know the the result the the fruit of that is just so good. Uh, and, and again, it's a God idea. I, when I was doing research for this book, um, I, I really wanted to write about the power of community and the power of being together. And then as I started researching, I'm like, well, we're, we're not even together. It looks like we're together, but we're not. And what I discovered, and it was a quote from a guy, I think his name is Drew Hunter. And he said, uh, the, the, the first problem for man was not, uh, was not sin. And I'm thinking, okay. Georgine, I'm thinking, who's this heretic? I got I to gotta find out who this guy is. How can he say that? But I started researching, and he said, go back and read Genesis again, and you'll discover that the first problem was loneliness, because God said to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone, so I will create a companion for him. So this idea is from the very beginning uh, of creation, and it's so important. And if you'll be willing to make an investment, I, I think what's happened with our culture as we have become, uh, and this is another, uh, not my idea, but another idea I came across, uh, we become so dismembered, so mm. dismembered. I've you know, i got two kids in college, and I'm paying for car insurance, and there's this thing in the insurance policy, policy that says accidental death and dismemberment, and that's kind of what's happened as the body of Christ. We've become so dismembered, and so what I, w- I would encourage you to, especially if you know Christ, to remember Remember, rejoin the body of Christ because we won't be effective on our own. God made us dependent on one another, and uh, it is a God idea, and it's the way that we can best function to not only bring him glory, but to find our ultimate purpose for living is found in that kind of relationship.
2: One of the things that keeps us from connecting meaningfully with others is the absence of trust. We're fearful of being known, Mm -hmm. and we're desperate to be known. Can you talk about uh, trust and how we can deal with that fear as we seek genuine community and friendship?
0: Yeah, I I was listening to an interview, uh, gosh, it's probably been five or six years ago, uh, from the guys who co-founded Airbnb. And I'm listening to them talk, and and Georgie and I was just, I was mesmerized because their first statement was, "Hey, we didn't start Airbnb to make money." So I'm thinking, "Okay, well, what what did you, why did you start this thing?" (laughs) Yeah, what were you Uh, thinking? What were you thinking? And they said we started Airbnb because we wanted to build community, and we we knew if we built a community that the money would follow. It would become a marketplace, but our heart was really to build community. But they said what the challenge was was this idea of staying in strangers' homes, uh, you know, or condos or apartments or whatever was was very far into culture. Much like uh, when Amazon got started and and Uber and and uh, you know I've done Amazon, my wife especially has done Amazon a lot online, buying online and Uber <laughs> and all those things. Um, and so they said we knew that what we were talking about was different and new too. So we were going to have to get people accustomed to it. And so they said, we put a lot of things in place to help people be comfortable and and to build trust, to build this community. And so I'm listening. And then they made this statement. They said, if we just wanted to build a marketplace and make money, then money is the currency of of transactions. But trust is the currency of interactions. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that wow. is so good. That's so good. They said, we don't want this just to be a transactional thing. We want it to be an interaction. And, and I think really for us, especially, again, in the body of Christ, we've got to get back to real genuine friendship comes from care and concern for people. And we sometimes let culture get us so busy again, no buff in our lives or running on to the next thing. You see somebody at church. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. You keep on walking. We both know neither one of them are fine. But we just keep plodding along and we've got to really um, have that caring concern. And when we do, then trust will follow. I I know a lot of the millennials, Gen Z, you know, tell me, hey, we're really struggling with this whole trust thing because they're, hey, let's be honest, their trust has been breached. My trust has been breached by friends. My trust has even been breached. Oh, there I say it. Yes, it's true by the church because we're flawed people. But just because our trust has been breached doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We get more intentional about finding the kind of community God wants us to have, and we might be a little more guarded. We, we, we try to operate smartly with our relationships, uh, and we plot on because, again, at the end of the day, this kind of community is what God uh, wants to use to help us grow and become uh, the kind of people he wants us to
2: become. Absolutely. Well, once again, the book is titled The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. Very timely, very relevant. And I hope you'll pick it up, not just to um, consider how to navigate this pandemic, but to consider how to navigate in life with strong, deep connections and in community. Jack Eason, it's always a delight to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, Georgine, thank you. And and I do want to encourage people, whether they get the book or not, there's tons of resources online to check out that can help you with your small group or your church group. And uh, let's all get the loneliness solution, which is the relationship that we need with Christ and our brothers and sisters in Christ.
2: Amen. Thanks, Jack Eason. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm sitting in for Live from Seattle, KGNW 820 The Word. We need to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour, so stay with us. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, and Live from Seattle, KGNW 820 The Word. Well, President Donald Trump told Americans today why he has. Uh, not conceded the election in an unprecedented video message late Wednesday afternoon that he said may be the most important speech he's ever made. The constitutional process must be allowed to continue, he said in the speech recorded at the white house as his reelection campaign pursued litigation in several States and state legislatures investigated voter fraud. We're going to defend the honesty of the votes by ensuring every legal ballot is counted and that no illegal ballot is counted. The president said major media outlets projected November 7th, former Vice President Joe Biden had won the November 3rd election by garnering more than the necessary 270 electoral votes. But in the past two weeks, state legislative panels in the closely contested states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, uh, and others heard testimony from witnesses who alleged large-scale election fraud. Concurrently, Trump's legal team is challenging the election results in those uh, three states, as well as Georgia, Nevada, and Wisconsin. All you have to do, the president said in his video, is watch uh, the hearings and see for yourself the evidence is overwhelming. The fraud that we've collected in recent weeks is overwhelming, having to do with our elections. Well, The president's remarks, recorded and released without notice to the White House Press Corps, went for 46 minutes and offered the most detailed case yet for his challenges to the unofficial results. The Electoral College will pick the winner on December 14th. Time is running out. The Wisconsin Supreme Court said today that it will hear the Trump campaign's latest legal challenge to the president's election loss in the swing state last month. Well, the campaign filed a lawsuit on Tuesday morning in Wisconsin's high court alleging that abuse of absentee voting affected 220,000 ballots in the uh, two bluest con- uh, counties, rather, of the battleground state the president elect Joe Biden won. Well, these actions should be filed in the circuit court, Justice Brian Hagedorn wrote in an opinion expressing the majority. Rule. Well, following this law is not disregarding our duty. As some of my colleagues suggest, it's following the law, he said. So, again, Wisconsin Supreme Court has refused to hear the Trump campaign's legal challenge. Well, the group at the center of the investigation into voter fraud recently opened by the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensberger, hired contractors who were found to have forged ballot applications in 2014. Well, the group, the New Georgia Project, was founded by former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacy Abrams to help register new voters. Ultimately, the 2014 investigation found no wrongdoing by the group, but did cite... 14 people for forging 53 voter applications. All those cited were working in independent, as independent contractors, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Well, on Wednesday, Raffensperger, he announced an investigation into several progressive organizations that he alleges sought to register ignoble, out-of-state, and deceased voters for the January 5th Senate runoff elections. Among those named were Vote Forward, the New Georgia Project, Operation Voter Registration Georgia, and American Votes. Uh, I have issued clear warnings several times to groups and individuals working to undermine the integrity of elections in Georgia through false and fraudulent registrations. He said in the statement, the security of Georgia's election is of the utmost importance. We have received specific evidence that these groups have solicited voter registrations from ineligible individuals who have passed away or live out of state. I will investigate these claims thoroughly and take action against anyone attempting to undermine our elections. Now, you might recall that there were some. Men and women of influence who suggested doing just that move to Georgia in order to vote uh, to try to make sure that the Senate majority uh, of Republicans could be overthrown. Well, one might uh, might say this is what actual journalism looks like. On Tuesday, Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe announced that thanks to a CNN insider, he had months of recorded calls from the network executives, daily 9 a.m. conference calls. Well, O'Keefe made his announcement live during a conference call by unmuting himself, surprising CNN President Jeff Zucker by directly addressing him and informing him that Project Veritas had been listening in on his calls for roughly two months. O'Keefe called out Zucker, stating, do you uh, still feel you're the most trusted name in news? Because I have to say what I've been hearing on these phone calls, I don't know about that. Uh, we've got a lot of recordings that indicate you're not really that independent of a journalist. End quote. Well, a promised project Veritas released several clips of uh, Zucker's phone calls on Wednesday evening, and as O'Keefe claimed, they reveal CNN's executives collaborating to spin the news narrative against President Donald Trump and Republicans. Now, this is ev- evidence presented, but it doesn't really. Surprise, many who were watching or listening very closely that that was the case. Just one example of CNN's bias is an exchange wherein Zucker makes the decision to avoid any coverage of the Hunter Biden laptop scandal. CNN's political director, David Chilean, uh, he responded, obviously, we're not going with the New York Post story right now on Hunter Biden. And which seems to be giving its marching orders to Fox News and the right-wing echo chamber about what to talk about today. Obviously, Hunter Biden's lawyer is quoted in that New York Times piece, or rather New York Post piece, and we um, will just continue to report out this uh, is very uh, stuff that the president was impeached for. This is the stuff that Senate committees looked at and found nothing wrong in Uh, Joe Biden interactions with Ukrainians and now having an email that perhaps there was a meeting with someone from Burisma is, it seems, Rudy Giuliani's sort of dream-a-vision of how to throw stuff at the wall in these closing days of the campaign, end quote. Well, the truth is, the revelation, if it uh, can rightly be labeled as such, should come as a surprise to no one, as CNN had repeatedly demonstrated that it is a little other than a media arm for a political party. What this does do is provide more uh, evidence to support that very charge. Any claims on CNN's part of engaging in objective journalism is simply... Fake news. Meanwhile, Mark Kelly was sworn in this week as the newest member of the U.S. Senate, giving Arizona two Democratic members in Congress upper chamber and temporarily shaving the GOP's majority. Fellow Arizona Senator Kristen Sunima escorted Kelly to the ceremony conducted by Vice President Mike Pence. Both men wore masks, as did Sinema, and bumped elbows uh, when the oath was finished, according to the Associated Press. Kelly's wife and former Arizona Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who was shot in the head during a mass shooting nine years ago, had walked Kelly into the building and joined his twin brother, Scott Kelly, in the Visitors Gallery to watch the proceedings. Following the ceremony, the members adjourned for a photo in the old Senate chamber where Pence and Kelly, a former astronaut, discussed the military and NASA. This is an honor for me, Pence reported, uh, saying congratulations. Well, the 56-year-old Kelly bested Republican incumbent Senator Martha McSally in November, narrowing the GOP control in the upper chamber to a majority of 52 seats. Kelly was sworn in this week because he ran in a special election to fill the seat once held by Senator John McCain. Other winners in the November general election won't take official uh, positions until January, and George's runoff elections the same month will ultimately decide control of the chamber. Kelly Swearin uh, marks a new chapter in the Senate's, uh, rather the state's politics. Arizona his- historically read but flipped in favor of now President-elect Joe Biden becoming a key rung on the ladder to victory. This year marks the first time Arizona has had two Democratic senators since January of 1953. Well, America's relationship with the Chinese Communist Party state has entered a new age, and it's about time. The Trump administration over the past four years jettisoned the conventional wisdom that once saw the CCP, like any other geopolitical competitor, whose authoritarianism and pretensions to global dominance were just another portfolio to be managed. But Republicans are launching legislative broadside against China. Beijing itself has also shattered the old American illusion about its rise as uh, it sought to gaslight the world about the coronavirus pandemic origins, strangle democracy in Hong Kong and built a system of industrial scale prison camps in China's West. Today, emerging consensus endorses a non, a rather no-hold-bar com, uh, competition with the party across numerous interconnected areas, as well as congressional Republicans fear the reversal of Trump-era gains under the incoming Biden administration. They're releasing today a suite of legislation designed to codify and expand on them. Information about the legislation, Uh, the the push was provided exclusively to National Review ahead of its uh, Thursday afternoon launch by the Republican Study Committee, the 150-member caucus of conservatives in the House uh, that's uh, leading the charge. Republicans must stay united to keep up the same level of pressure on China as we had under Trump the last four years. And these pieces of legislation proposed first by the Republican Study Committee are part of our effort to do just that. That's a quote from Jim Banks, the representative who will uh, lead the group this uh, next year. The proposal which spanned everything from China's IP theft to prohibiting the use of U.S. funds to purchase goods made by China's military-linked enterprises are the direct outgrowth of the June 2020 RSC report that called for numerous legislative changes to compete with China. And they complement the work of the House GOP China Task Force. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and... Live from Seattle, we'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to Live from Seattle and the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, warned the incoming Biden administration against politicizing intelligence, urging them to be honest about and acknowledge that China is the greatest national security threat that we face. In an exclusive interview following the publication of an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that outlined the threat of China – To the United States. Ratcliffe said that he was in a unique vantage point or in a position and the ability to see more threat information than anyone else. The intelligence is so clear that China is our greatest threat, Ratcliffe said. People that equate other things or say, oh, you know, Russia is a greater threat, they're politicizing intelligence, Ratcliffe said. I am hoping now that the election is over, now that people have voted, and if there is a Biden administration, that they will get past politicizing intelligence and be honest about China and acknowledge that China and China. China alone is the greatest national security threat that we face. Well, Ratcliffe in a later interview said that China intends to dominate economically, militarily, and technologically, and is the only country capable of challenging American supremacy across the board. All of the threat systems that we have from all aspects, militarily, uh, economically, supply chain issues, foreign investment, technologically, cyber issues, cyber warfare, 5G, telecommunications. China is in all of those, and they are the only country to be in that space and the only country that threatens American supremacy. Uh, When asked whether the United States was in an offensive or defensive position with regard to China, Ratcliffe said that the U.S. remains in an offensive position. Meanwhile, China has laid out the broad goals and objectives of its 14th five-year plan, which will extend from 2021 to 2025. And one of the priorities is elevating the level of national security. Now, while Americans may be inclined to dismiss any budget plan more than a year out, Five-year plans are an important part of the planning process for the People's Republic of China. When something is incorporated into that uh, fiscal year or five-year plan, this merits a lot of attention because it reflects broad bureaucratic consensus. No ministry or bureaucracy will submit something for inclusion in the five-year plan unless it has reached internal agreement. Similarly, they're going to fight to ensure their goals and objectives are fully funded if challenged. Economic technological and supply chain security clearly will be their priorities. There is concern about preserving societal stability, a key goal of a state that has been beset by persistent and widespread civil disturbances over the last decade. One example, there's continued emphasis on urbanization while reducing the divide between urban and rural development. This suggests the Chinese leadership see the growing disparities between the countryside and the cities as a major source of concern. Since these gaps also emphasize the imbalance between coastal provinces, which have generally benefited from the policies of reform and opening um, uh, pursued since the uh, Deng Xiaoping era, the inland ones, any effort to improve rural populations, will also likely see benefits accrue to island, rather inland provinces. At the same time, and it may suggest that they're growing internal security issues, attending this growing inequality, and that's part of their concern. So they've set for the next five years what their priorities will be, and they will fully fund those priorities. Meanwhile, there was a headline recently suggesting that the U.S. military is still strained to fulfill essential missions. That's according to their annual report. A big defense spending push under President Trump has still left the U.S. military barely able to meet its central military missions, even as rivals such as China and Russia bulk up according to the latest military review issued by the Conservative Heritage Foundation. While the think tank's Center for National Defense released their annual Index of U.S. Military Strength, which came with troubling conclusions about the state of the U.S. Armed Forces and their ability to defend vital American interests. As currently postured, the U.S. military is only marginally able to meet the demands, the report said. Well, retiring Texas Representative Mac Thornberry, the senior Republican on the House Armed Services Committee, said at the briefing for the report's release that it was crucial not to hide from a candid objective analysis. We're not where we should be, Mr. Thornberry said. The federal government is not fulfilling its full responsibility, its first responsibility to the American people and the future generations to provide for the common defense. Well, this year's index is the seventh annual analysis of U.S. military strength issued by the think tank. And this year's edition reflects the early fruits of a major spending bump overseen by Mr. Trump, for the Pentagon in his four years in office. The military is an essential tool. It's seen as capable and ready to respond to challenges to U.S. interests. That's a quote from a retired U.S. Marine Corps officer and research analyst at Heritage, Dakota Wood, who edited this year's report on military strength. It's actually a backstop. It enhances the power of diplomacy. Well, the question is, why is the military only marginally able uh, to defend our national interests, well, the future of the U.S. depends on our ability to meet the military challenges that are coming. I mentioned China and Russia, but there's also North Korea and Iran in this turbulent 21st century. Well, according to the 2021 index that I referenced, the U.S. military is only marginally able uh, to meet its demands, and the index is an un- is an authorized rather and comprehensive assessment. Uh, the Navy is rated as marginal, but is trending toward weak. Uh, because the Navy needs 400 ships to meet demand and currently has a fleet of about 300 aging ships and overstretched shipyards inadequate to defend the nation's interest. The, meat, the Marine Corps, rather, also received a marginal rating for the 2021 index, an improvement from 2020. Uh, the rating then was weak. However, the higher rating was achieved not because of major system improvements, but because the index lowered the scoring criteria to account for the Marine Corps' recent decision to focus its efforts on the Indo-Pacific region. The Army represents a pretty mixed bag in the report, receiving an overall marginal rating, but a weak rating for capacity because it can only field 35 of the 50 brigade combat teams necessary to defend American interests. The Air Force's capability score is rated as marginal because of the shortage of pilots to generate the amount of quality of uh, combat air power needed to meet the wartime requirements. And conventional wisdom dictates that fighter pilots should receive an average of three or more sorties a week, 200 hours of flight time per year to develop the skill set needed to survive in combat. Well, even with the greatly improved uh, maintenance and manning and experience levels, average monthly sorties and flying hours haven't reached uh, those thresholds since the inauguration uh, of, the, of In 2015, of the index of the U.S. military strength. So this is uh, very concerning in view of uh, what we just mentioned with regard to China. They continue to modernize. Russia has violated the borders of nearly uh, every nearby country while expanding its uh, nuclear arsenal. So there's concern there. Um, As I mentioned, Tehran, Iran represents by far the most significant security challenge to the United States. Uh, Their open hostility to the U.S. and Israel, its sponsorship of terrorism and so on is a a growing concern. Uh, So in context with uh, the Chinese report and Concerns about the threat to China, but certainly others as well. It's very concerning to see where the U.S. military stands at this point. Well, unemployment claims fell 712,000 over the Thanksgiving week. That's according to statistics released on Thursday by the Department of Labor, bringing the total number of jobless claims since the pandemic began to 69.9 million or roughly 43 percent of the workforce. And while the number declined from 787,000 the previous week, weekly unemployment claims are still higher than the average 225,000 claims before mass business closures in March caused by the coronavirus. Thanksgiving seasonal uh, seasonals likely explained the drop according to the uh, an economic chief in the report, expect a rebound next week. In other words, more unemployment. Employers have recovered 12.1 million of the 22 million jobs originally lost in March and April at the start of the pandemic. The Labor Department is scheduled to release its November jobs report on Friday. Economists interviewed by The Wall Street Journal expect employers to have added 440,000 jobs over the past month, less than 638,000 added in October. However, with the surge in COVID-19, whether or not that will remain the case remains to be seen. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We need to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. Well, today Oregon moves out of the freeze put in place by Governor Kate Brown and into a tiered framework And it's designed to designate every county by risk levels with different restrictions for each tier. So if you're in your car and you go from Multnomah to Clackamas County, you might want to check to see what's permitted there and what's not. Anyway, the county's placement in each tier will generally be based on a two-week rate of cases per 100,000. We know that whole system in smaller communities, it's 30,000. Well, 25 Oregon counties, including Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas, have been deemed at extreme risk. Multnomah County has pretty much been there since this whole thing began, and we face the most restrictions. Again, Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties. Well, you could read a full explanation of each of these states' tiers and how they'll be measured at the state's coronavirus website, uh, but here are some things that you might want to know. The extreme risk tier that we're mostly in um, with the uh, has uh, – Counties with the most elevated risk categories, social gatherings inside and outside are limited to six people with a recommended limit of two households. Restaurants and bars under this um, risk, extreme risk tier are allowed to reopen for outdoor dining. But with a maximum capacity of 50 people total and a maximum party size of six people, all establishments have to close by 11. So there's also a curfew, if you will. Indoor recreational facilities and gyms, they have to remain closed, as well as indoor recreation facilities with movie theaters, museums. Um, Outdoor recreational facilities, including pools, parks, outdoor fitness classes, are limited to 50 people. And retail stores, including uh, indoor and outdoor malls, can remain open, but with a limit of 50% capacity of their total. Curbside pickup is encouraged and available. Faith institutions, also known as the church and other uh, faith groups, synagogues, mosques, and so on, can hold services indoors, but are limited to either 25% of their capacity or 100 people, whichever is less. Outdoor services are limited to 150 people, and the state recommended keeping services to an hour or less. I'm not sure how the duration of the service makes a difference, but they're recommending it's not required. Uh, Remote work is encouraged when possible and public um, offices should be closed. Outdoor recreational facilities like zoos and stadiums are limited to 50 people. Uh, Personal, I'm not even sure for some of these uh, organizations, it's financially feasible to remain open with such a small population. But personal services like salons are allowed to operate normally, which is rather interesting to me. Uh, Visits to long-term care facilities must take place outside with limited exceptions. Uh, Counties in the extreme risk tier are Baker, Clackamas, Columbia, Crook, Deschutes, Douglas, Grant, Hood River, Jackson, Jefferson, Josephine, Klamath, Lake Lane, Lynn, Malheur, I never know how to say that right, Marion, Morrow, Multnomah, Polk, Umatilla, Union, Wasco, Washington, and Yamhill. Well, that's almost all of them. Well, under the second highest category, the high risk tier, and that includes Benton, Clatsop, Coos, Curry, and Lincoln. Under this category, social gatherings inside are limited to six people with a a recommendation to limit... Uh, Two households, outdoor gatherings are limited to eight people. Restaurants and bars are allowed to reopen for indoor and outdoor dining, but with a maximum capacity of 25% or 50 people, whichever is smaller. Indoor recreational facilities and gyms, as well as indoor entertainment facilities, will be limited. Retail stores, faith institutions, still 25% or 150 people uh, are allowed. Whichever is smaller, outdoor services are limited to 200. So they have quite a a bit of... um, uh, difference there in terms of the numbers of people who are permitted in worship services. Remote work is uh, encouraged when possible. Outdoor recreation facilities uh, are limited in terms of their capacity. Uh, Personal services like salons are allowed to operate normally, and visits to long-term care facilities are allowed. Um, Counties, again, in this risk are Benton, Clatsop, Coos, Curry, and Lincoln. Then there's the moderate risk tier. That includes Harney and Tillamook, and the lower risk to, uh, tier, and that includes, so let's see, Gilliam, Sherman, Walawa, and Wheeler. I'm not going to bother to mention all of those because they um, are not within my hearing. But uh, nonetheless, they all have restrictions as well, but they are less restrictive uh, depending on their risk assessment. So the new coronavirus risk levels were established to set business and social restrictions on 36 Oregon counties, they're more complex than initially described by the state. The governor announced some time ago that the one size fits all uh, model does not work across the state. And so she's implied a tier has applied a tier system to determine what can and cannot be done across the uh, the state of Oregon. So try to keep up. And this is in place for two weeks. Meanwhile, Jim Mark, who's the CEO of Portland real estate company Melvin Mark, contacted Governor Kate Brown's office and local officials last summer As he grew increasingly alarmed about the state of downtown Portland, he expressed his support for peaceful protests for racial justice but condemned the groups of people who had used the demonstrations as a cover for destruction and vandalism against downtown businesses already suffering with the coronavirus pandemic. And he called on the state and others to unequivocally condemn the violence downtown and take action to revive Portland's central city. But he felt like the police fell on deaf ears. And if you've driven downtown, you can see that very little has changed since the violence began some weeks and months ago. It was almost like they they weren't coming downtown and really seeing the damage and destruction that was happening, he said. So he and other members of the Portland business community have launched a new coalition. They're calling themselves the Rose City Downtown Collective, and they're aiming to pressure officials for more concrete action while launching their own initiative to revive the city's core. Now, the group announced its formation on Wednesday in an open letter to the city of Portland signed by nearly 300 members of the business community. Well, in the letter, the group said that it is done passively waiting for help and had the letter and uh, had uh, formed to support local downtown businesses with this letter. Uh, to clean up the downtown area, connect business owners with the resources they need to clean up the damage and ultimately take the boards off of their windows. Well, just like its citizens, downtown Portland is hurting right now. The letter stated the pandemic has forced many of our great restaurants, local retailers, local businesses to shutter, stay closed and even relocate. The repercussions left by COVID paired with over five months of nightly vandalism will affect businesses and life downtown for years to come. And of course, those businesses, they employ our neighbors, people who live in your neighborhoods and mine. Well, there's no um, ongoing tension or rather there is ongoing tension over how Portland should balance support for social justice protests with restoring civil norms and business downtown. Uh, the pandemic has secluded uh, many people. It's clouded the issues. It's emptied downtown of um, office workers, shoppers, diners, theater goers, and that makes it difficult to ascertain the public's appetite to return when the coronavirus eventually wanes. Well, the new downtown collective, they include many established property owners, merchants, real estate companies, business uh, service firms. Uh, Portland Timbers president of business, Mike Golub, and Portland Trailblazers president, Chris McGowan, they signal their support. Um, Conspicuously absent, however, for those signing, though, were major downtown tech employers like Amazon, Puppet, eBay and New Relic. Uh, And few of the city's progressive young business leaders signed the the document um, as well. Well, dozens of downtown businesses have been closed or had their windows boarded up since May the 30th, when the stores were looted during the early morning hours of a riot following a peaceful protest in the wake of George Floyd's death. And it is ongoing. The uh, interesting part of all of this is that business owners have decided that they are going to be required to take matters into their own hands. Nothing has been done to help restore uh, their businesses, to make the repairs that are necessary. Um, The graffiti that's a plight on many of the the businesses uh, through the downtown area, for that matter, it's not limited to the downtown area, has not been addressed either. Uh, We've just had the mayor reelected in the city of Portland who says he has some ideas about how to address all of this. And I think most people would agree it's time to move forward with just that so that these business owners and the people they employ, our neighbors, um, can move forward uh, following, in in some cases, even in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, Again, the organization, the Rose City Downtown Collective, they issued an open letter, and I believe that can be accessed online at this time as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about a sad loss. Walter Williams, a warrior for liberty, has died. I want to just remember him. A patriot, a friend, a teacher, a student, a husband, a father, legendary thinker, and a Christ follower. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, we're going to do what we typically do on Fridays. In fact, we have a uh, a guest we'll be talking to. Tomorrow is apparently National Cookie Day. Any excuse to have a cookie, I'm all in. We're going to be interviewing someone about the National Cookie Day celebration. I don't know how these things happen. Who makes the declaration, if it's an act of Congress or an act of God, I don't know. But tomorrow is National Cookie Day And I'm going to have some cookies. Now, if we were in studio, James and I would very likely have a whole array of cookies before us to determine which one we enjoy the best. But we don't have that luxury this time around. We're going to talk about National Cookie Day. And this is the season when lots of us are making cookies to take to our neighbors. So that's going to be a part of our day on Friday as we take a look at the lighter side of the news. We, of course, will also cover the day's headlines and share an interview of the week. So I hope you'll join us. Well, Walter Williams has died. He was 84. As I mentioned, he was a patriot. He was a teacher, a student, a husband, a father. He was a legendary thinker, and he was a Christ follower. Now, Walter Williams is African American. He's an economics professor, someone I had a great deal of respect for, his writings, his work, his thinking. Well, Professor Williams uh, believed in the power of liberty, and he worked every day of his adult life to harness government and to optimize individual liberty. In times of grief, we often ponder the essence of a person who has passed away. Albert Einstein once noted that we shouldn't try to become a man of success, but rather become a man of value. I like that woman in my case. Although he enjoyed national renown, the essence of Professor Walter E. Williams was all of these. He was a man of success, but he was also a man of value. Well, he grew up in a tough Philadelphia neighborhood. He knew the pain of a fatherless upbringing He learned hard lessons, but used every life experience to teach self-reliance, dignity, and hard work. And although he had a brilliant mind and was himself a teacher, he often said he never stopped learning, particularly from his friend and fellow defender of liberty, Professor Thomas Sowell, who was also one of my favorites, along with Shelby Steele. From his brilliant 1998 book, The Historical Origin of Christianity, to the insightful 2011 treatise, Race and Economics, thousands of essays and editorials on every aspect of public life and government. He was a gifted commentator unencumbered by the deadly weight of being politically correct. He told it, he sold it as he saw it. Professor Williams was a lauded economist, academic educator. Uh, He was a relentless defender of constitutional freedom as well as economic and individual liberty. Yet, if you asked Walter Williams in his life, uh, his most important job, he was likely to respond Connie's husband and Devon's dad. When Connie passed away unexpectedly in December of 2007, he was shattered by the loss of his companion of some 50 years. Our hearts and prayers now extend to his daughter in her time of grief. Um, she, his lone survivor, Thomas Sowell, who was uh, who described Dr. Williams as his best friend, said that Walter Williams loved teaching Unlike too many other teachers today, he made a point never to impose his opinions on his students. Now, that's a challenge in the 21st century college classroom. Those who read his syndicated newspaper columns know that he expressed his opinions boldly and unequivocally there, but not in the classroom. Walter once said that he hoped that on the day he died, he would have taught a class that day. And that is just precisely the way it was when he died on Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020. He had taught a class. As an economist, Walter Williams never got the credit he deserved. His book, Race and Economics, is a must-read introduction to the subject. Amazon has it ranked number five in sales among civil rights books nine years after it was published. That's saying something. Another book of his on the effects of economics under the white supremacist apartheid regime in South Africa was titled South Africa's War Against Capitalism. He went to South Africa to study the situation directly. Many of the things he brought out have uh, implications for race discrimination in other places around the world, including here at home. Well, despite his opposition to the welfare state as something doing more harm than good, Walter was privately very generous with both his money and his time in helping others. He was, as I mentioned, a man of great faith. While holding a black belt in karate, he was a tough customer. One night, three men jumped him, and two of those men ended up in the hospital. The other side of Walter came out in relation to his wife, Connie. She helped put him through graduate school, and after he received his Ph.D., she never had to work outside the home another day in her life, not even fix breakfast for him. Uh, Walter Williams liked to go to his job at 4.30 a.m. every morning. He was the only person who had no problem finding a parking space on the streets in downtown Washington around nine o'clock or so Connie, his wife now awake would phone him and they would greet each other tenderly for the day. We may not see the like of him again. And that is our loss. Again, Walter Williams was a patriot. He was a teacher, a student, a husband, a father, and a legendary thinker. He will be remembered for all of those things. But for me, and in light of eternity, the most important thing about him was he was a Christ follower. That tells me everything I need to know about Walter Williams on this day, second day after his death. Walter Williams is in the presence of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With all of the writing that he did, the mental preparation that he did, the traveling, the research, the study, the impact, the influence that he had, <clears throat> the most important thing Walter Williams did in his lifetime was to commit his life to Christ. He not only made preparation for a fruitful life now and here, but he made preparation for life eternal that began when he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He was an impressive man, but in light of his uh, commitment to to Christ, he is even more impressive than his academic um, acumen. Anyway, Walter Williams is one of the person, one of the people um, that I find uh, particularly African American that I find was most influential in my intellectual upbringing if you will he along with Shelby Steele and uh, as i mentioned uh, Thomas Soul three African American academics intellectuals whose writing is is absolutely um, incredible and i would recommend any of the three of them their contemporary writings and writing from some time back is absolutely worth uh, worth reading rest in peace and the presence of your Lord and Savior, Walter Williams. I hope to see you there. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Uh, I want to thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day and hope you will plan to join us for a little fun Friday as we take a look at the lighter side of the news in addition to the day's headlines and an interview of the week. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.